Today we're in Matthew chapter 27, verses 35 through 66. Today we come to the very central message of the whole Bible. And as I'm trying to prepare this week, I just keep thinking, you know, I don't even know what to say that could be better than just reading this text. And any words that I say are not better than just reading this text. They're just the words of a man. And as we look at this text today, this is the central message of Christianity. We're talking about the crucifixion of Christ today. Jesus has been falsely accused in an illegal overnight trial in the house of Caiaphas. He was then taken before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. In the morning, uh, they gave legitimacy to the trial. He meets again before Pilate. He was accused of blasphemy. He was then taken before the Roman governor, the Roman governor holding the power to put him to death. He gives in to the desires of the mob of the religious rulers, and he determines that Jesus is to be put to death. So Pilate has Jesus scourged. You remember what that was from last time? And then he's led to the place of the skull, which is called Golgotha, or the Latin word Calvary. So if anybody asks you, you go to Calvary Chapel, what's Calvary mean? It means skull. It means the place of the skull. Well, why that? Because Jesus was crucified at a place called the place of the skull. On the way, Simon of Cyrene is forced to carry Jesus' cross. Now at the place, Jesus would have been laid down on the cross on the ground, and the nails were driven through the ankles and the wrists. And verse 35 says, Then they crucified him. Heavenly Father, as we turn to you, to your word today, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us as we learn from you, as we learn about this darkest day in history, which was also the brightest day in history at the same time, paradoxically. And so, Lord, would you make the book live to us, Father, and would you help us, Lord, to humble ourselves? I pray against distracting thoughts, wandering hearts, Lord. Would you help our hearts be drawn by your Holy Spirit to the spirit of the word? And Lord Jesus, I know that the words that I say can only mar this. And so beyond the words of a weak man, would you speak to us supernaturally today? We do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 They crucified him there. Crucifixion was a form of torture and execution in the ancient world that involved fixing a person to a wooden cross, post, or tree using ropes or nails. We have a picture of it here, and I could have found a better one, I suppose, but kind of gives you the idea. As you see, the victim would be laid on the ground. The cross would be on the ground. They would lay them down on it, and they would nail through the wrists, and they would fold the ankles over one another like this and drive one nail all the way through both of the ankles. And then what would happen is there'd be a hole dug in the ground for the cross, and then everybody would lift the cross up, pulling it by ropes. When you get to the top, it it would drop right in there. And this is the scene, this is, I mean, you can kind of get an idea what the picture looks like there. I was trying to find copyright-free pictures in my Bible software, and I'm still learning how to use the software. Archaeologists have discovered the bones of a crucified man because for a long time they say there's no evidence that people were ever crucified. So it was pretty important that this archaeologist uh, discovered an ankle bone in an ossuary um, 
where it had an 11.5 centimeter iron nail driven through the heel. And you see a picture of it there. You see the nail going through the heel bone, giving validation to the fact that they did crucify people in this area. That was a really important discovery. The Persians are credited with inventing crucifixion, but the Romans for perfecting it. Now, the victim, first of all, was tortured by various means. The victim carried his or her crossbar, uh, the, you know, the crossbar of the T. They carried that to the place of the crucifixion. Remember, Jesus couldn't do it, so Joseph of Arimathea, had to, or Simon of Cyrene, had to pick it up and take it. Pardon me. The victim was fastened by ropes or nails to the crossbeam. The crossbeam and the victim were then raised to the wooden post or the tree and fastened to it. One commentator describes what it would be like being on the cross, uh, from, at least from his understanding. The pain from the nails piercing Jesus' hands would cause his pectoral major muscles to go into spasms, his lungs to no longer operate properly. The only way one being crucified could breathe would be to straighten his legs, place his full weight on the nail driven through his feet, and stand straight, thereby forcing air into his lungs. To exhale, he would bend his knees, causing the full weight of his body to hang on the nails in his hands. This is why when they eventually wanted to kill a man, they would come, and after he'd hung there and been tortured for a while, they'd come and break the legs of those that were on the cross, and then eventually they couldn't uh, breathe anymore. And so they would die of asphyxiation. Uh, if they didn't die of shock first. A lot of times they didn't die of shock because they would give him like this narcotic substance and it would just prolong the whole thing. Um, it was really an ad campaign for Rome, the way that they did this. Essentially, they would write the charges above the person's head. They would parade them through town through the longest route possible. And everybody would be seeing this parade. You guys have been to like the 4th of July parade, you know, like where they're throwing out candy. This was a different parade where they parade the victim through the city and essentially, they're saying, don't mess with Rome. And they would let him hang uh, in conspicuous places. And eventually, animals would eat the bodies or, you know, wild, you know, birds picking at them. Except for in the case of the Sabbaths and the holiday seasons, the Jews had made an agreement with Rome that we can't have any bodies hanging around during these holiday times. And we'll see later that they grant Jesus' body to somebody because that's the case. But typically they would be eaten by animals and left there. Verse 35 goes on and says, And they divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Now, where it says that they divided his garments, that they were casting lots. So dividing the garments, you know, you've seen a lot of pictures of the crucifixion of Jesus and he kind of has the loincloth on or whatever. Those are, you know, artist renditions. You know, of course, they're more modest because the, the victim would have been stripped naked just to add to the shame of the whole thing. Where it says they divided his garments and casted lots. Now, this is a fulfillment of Psalm 22, 18. Now, I keep pointing these things out because... What you should know is this is roughly 30 AD-ish when Christ is crucified, roughly. And there are predictions from the Old Testament that are 600, 700,000 years beforehand. And so I like to point them out as we're going through because what this does is it gives the analytical mind, it gives validation to the truth of the Bible that, wow, these 
predictions were made about what was going to happen in Christ's life, and they came through uh, to the T. Nothing has ever been like that in history where there's a book where there were literally hundreds of predictions that were fulfilled perfectly. Nothing's ever come close to that. You have somebody like Nostradamus, which gets roughly close to some sort of thing a couple of times, and people say he's a prophet and all this and that. The Bible, there's hundreds of predictions from different prophets, different countries, different places, different times, that all of them have come true to the T in Jesus Christ. The odds of Christ fulfilling any of these prophecies, even 10 of them, is so astronomical that mathematicians, that scientists are just completely blown away and they say there has to be, either, either the Bible wasn't written when we think it was, or it has to be from some sort of divine origin because of the fulfilled predictions. And let me read just one of them to you. Psalm 22, 18 says this. Now, this is hundreds of years before what's happening in our passage today. And it says, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Right? And so Matthew's pointing out that that's what happened at the crucifixion. They divided his garments, and they cast lots for them. Now, casting lots is like rolling dice. It's fascinating how the, the casting lots part came to be. John tells us in his gospel that Jesus' outer garment was like a one-piece woven garment, and so it would have been valuable. And so all the guards said, we'll rip his other clothes in pieces and divide it four ways, but let's cast lots for this garment because it was so valuable. And that's just interesting. I mean, your mind you know, thinks of this, how this came about to fulfill this prophecy, Right? The amazing accuracy of biblical prophecy. Verse 37 says, And they put up over his head the accusation written against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. So this was his accusation above him. It was kind of like mocking. You know, Pilate put this up there, sort of mocking the whole thing. Like the Jews were like, Take that down. He says, No, what I've written, I've written. Another gospel tells us there, and he leaves that there. Verse 38 says, Then two robbers were crucified with him one on the right and the other on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, he saved others himself, he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him, if he will now have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him for the same thing. Isaiah 53, verse 12, 600, 700 years before this says, he was numbered with the transgressors. He was crucified with two robbers. He was numbered with the transgressors. The depravity rate of these people that are mocking Jesus, you know, look at how they mock him in verse 42. He's hanging on the cross, and it's, it's, to me it's interesting the things that they say about him. They say he saved others. <laughs> they say that he trusted God. They say let God save him if he will have him. He said he was the son of God, insinuating that if he really was the son of God, that he could not be going through suffering. And it's interesting that we get mocked by people sometimes the very same way. We say, look at how bad things are going in your life, and you trusted God? 
It doesn't make sense to the natural man's mind of how trusting God and suffering both can go together, but they do. And you frequently see it in the Bible. In fact, you see it in the life of Christ. This is the Son of God, perfectly obedient to the will of the Father, but yet suffering is part of the plan of God. And as, actually, as he's submitted to the plan of God, um, he, suffering is involved with that. And you find great comfort in that today, too, because you say, look, I'm going through life and I'm trusting in God, but I still go through difficult things. That's part of your life as a Christian is to have, you're going to go through good things and bad things as a Christian. Being a Christian doesn't mean you're exempt from suffering, right? You do have a God that goes with you through your suffering. This mockery is a fulfillment of Psalm 22, verses 6 through 13. Let me read it. It says, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me to trust while on my mother's breast. I will cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. Psalm 22 is very interesting because it describes the effects of crucifixion hundreds of years before crucifixion was ever invented. Do the math on that. Luke in his gospel, Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43, tells us another interesting detail about what's going on here at the cross. Says this, this is Luke's account. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are different gospels, and they give kind of the same story of Jesus, but from different angles, and they give different details. It's kind of like asking four little rascals to give you their testimony about what happened with the pies on the, win you know, on the windowsill. You guys remember that when you were a kid? You know? And then here's what Luke says in his account. He says, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? This is the conversation from the cross. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is extremely significant. If you've never heard this before, extremely significant. Do you see those last things there? The last little few lines there, this other criminal, he looked to Jesus and he said, Lord, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He recognized the lordship of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, right? I doubt he said it as plain as I did, like, Lord, you know, he was probably like, <gasps> you know, trying to, <gasps> that's kind of how it sounded, I guess, because you were trying to get, <gasps> you know, air into your lungs. And somehow he managed to get this out. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what a beautiful thing that Jesus says to this man. He says, Assuredly, I say today to you, if you hop down off this cross and get baptized, then you'll be with me in the kingdom of heaven. He says, Surely, if you hop down off this cross real quick and learn how to read your Bible and become a Bible scholar, today you'll be with me in heaven. 
He said, surely if you hop down off the cross and do seven sacraments, you know, and keep them faithful, you'll be with me in heaven. For those of you that are just going with what I'm saying, you're, you know, you don't, you're not really paying attention. <laughs> because Jesus doesn't say any of those things. Do you notice that? How does a person get to heaven? You're sitting here today and you're wondering about God and maybe, you're, maybe you don't know too much about God and somebody brought you here or for whatever reason and you're wondering about God and you're wondering, how can I know for sure that I'm going to go to heaven instead of go to hell when I die? I wonder how to get to heaven. The answer is right here. Do you see it? What did this guy do? What did this guy do? Because Jesus said to this guy, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. In other words, today you are going to heaven. What did he do? He just acknowledged who Jesus was. He believed. He believed that Jesus is who he says he is. That's how you'll go to heaven too, is if you believe who Jesus says he is, you believe what he did, you'll give your life to him as Lord of your life. That's how you go to heaven too. That's fascinating, isn't it? This is the central message of the whole Bible here today that you're hearing. The most important message in Christianity right here before you. What have you done with this? Are you like the other thief that's up there mocking him? If you're the son of God, do something already. The other one says he is doing something. Look at, <laughs> you know. He has done something. I wonder if you've acknowledged Jesus Christ today and his lordship. This is how a person goes to heaven. It's not by making yourself good, not by doing good works. It's not by going to church a whole bunch of times. It's not by reading your Bible a whole bunch of times, getting baptized, getting confirmed. None of that stuff. This guy believed and Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's it. He obviously doesn't have a very robust theological understanding, right? Sometimes we make it seem very difficult for people to get saved, don't we? Because we tell them, you know, oh, you know, the Bible is written in Greek and Hebrew and stuff like that. And so you have to have a little bit of, you know, all that stuff is good. But this is how you go to heaven, by believing in the Son of God, by believing Jesus is Lord. If you want to go to heaven today and you're not sure that you are, this is how you, this is how you do it, is you believe that Jesus Christ died when he was hanging on the cross, gasping for life. He was doing it to pay for your sin. And if you believe that and you trust him, you'll be with him in paradise. Interesting that Jesus was perfectly able to get down off the cross. And where they say to him, they say, if he's the son of God, let him get down off the cross. He was able to save others. He can't save himself. Jesus is perfectly able to get down off the cross, isn't he? Does anybody here doubt that Jesus could get off the cross? What do you think held Jesus on the cross? Love. Very good. His love held him on the cross. His love for you and for me. Verse 45 says, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the whole land. Now, this sixth hour, uh, Jesus had been put on the cross at nine o'clock in the morning. Death by crucifixion was slow and excruciating. Three hours passed while Jesus put up with the mockery from those standing by. Then at noon, darkness settled over the land for three hours. 
This darkness was prophesied in the book of Amos, chapter 8, verse 9. It says, And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. Interesting fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. Some people have suggested that this was an eclipse, but we know that this was the time of the year of the Passover, so it's impossible because the moon's, you know, everything's in completely in the wrong position for an eclipse. This was God. This was something supernatural. It was a darkness that could be felt. Not only was it a physical darkness, a literal darkness, it was a time of spiritual darkness. And about the ninth hour, which would be noon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed, it's like a narcotic, and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone, let us see if Elijah will come to save him. Now, Those words, my God, my God, this is the only time that Jesus addresses God as anything other than my Father. And that's very significant. Every other time Jesus speaks with God to his Father, he calls him my Father. Here, the one time he calls him my God because he's speaking at a place of distance. For the first time ever, the Son of God is experiencing distance from God the Father. He says, why have you forsaken me? Now, that's a direct quote from Psalm 22, verse 1. It literally says, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, the crucifixion psalm, and he's saying this is literally being fulfilled in your hearing. And for those that have the ears to hear, they would understand that. Why have you forsaken me? This is a really compelling statement that Jesus makes while he's on the cross. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13 says, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. God cannot look on wickedness. So he has to in this moment. He must turn his, his eyes, he must turn his back from Jesus. This is extremely significant. It says, for he made him, in First Corinth, or 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says this, it's a very significant verse, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In this moment while Christ was hanging on the cross, and while he's saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, this is when Jesus Christ was made sin. And so Habakkuk says that God the Father, he can't look on sin. So God literally churns his fellowship from God the Son during this moment. Jesus Christ was utterly alone and utterly forsaken as he was on the cross. During that moment, the wrath of all sin, every sin ever committed by every single person ever throughout of all human history, the penalty of that sin was laid upon him at the cross. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, for he made him, that is, God the Father made him, Jesus, God the Son, 
who knew no sin, he was sinless, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is so significant for the Christian life. So many Christians walk around today and they don't understand. They still see themselves as somebody that's under the guilt and under the weight and the condemnation of sin. But on the cross, what was happening was all sin, all the penalty of all sin was put on Christ in this moment. He became sin in your place. There's not a more significant message in all the Bible than that the Son of God took my sin upon himself. You know, my dad committed suicide. My wife, her husband committed suicide. Maybe you know somebody that's committed suicide. Maybe you thought about committing suicide. And a lot of times people do that because they're under the weight of guilt. A lot of people today are medicated so heavily because they're under the weight of guilt. A lot of the people do some really strange things in life because they're under the weight and pressure of guilt. They feel like they've failed as a parent. They feel like they've failed in some way. They've let somebody down. They've done something that's irreparable. They've hurt somebody and they get visions of it and it's so bad that nothing can take it. They wake up in the middle of the night crying and screaming because of something they've done to somebody else. This is the answer. Jesus Christ took the penalty of all of our sin upon himself. When we believe in that, God applies that to our heart. He applies that to our mind. Listen, I know it's incredibly distracting in here right now. Got the music back there. Got everything. You know what I mean? It's, it's really loud. There is nothing more important than this today to you. Either today you're sitting here under the weight of the guilt of your own sin and you're going to answer for it for eternity or you're going to come to Jesus Christ today and you're going to give your life to him and you're going to get forgiven of your sin. There's no other way to escape the guilt of your own sin. There's no way. But God has made this available. This is what was happening at the cross in this moment. He became sin. Every single thing that you feel guilty about, he became it. He became the effects of these things, the, the penalty of that sin, he became that in that moment. Everything that was due to you is transferred to him. Isn't that something? He's crying out in agony of separation from his father and he bears the penalty of the sins and he deals with separation from the father. The first time ever in Christ's life, he says, um, why have you forsaken me? And he's utterly alone in that moment. He's quoting Psalm 22, letting people know that it was fulfilled that day. He's praying for the sin of those who are mocking him. You remember also what he said from the cross? He looked out and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's incredible. Jesus Christ is also misunderstood on the cross. They say, he's calling out for Elijah. He's actually speaking in Hebrew and Aramaic, and what he's saying is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They say, well, he's crying out to Elijah. Christ is even misunderstood on the cross. That's comforting to you today, too, because as a Christian, you will be misunderstood. Why are you doing the things that you're doing? Why do you not do the things that you used to do? 
It's because I follow Jesus and you don't understand. How cruel that is, right? The guy's hanging and dying for the sin of the world and they're saying, oh, don't give him any sour wine. Let's see if Elijah comes and saves him. It turns into a game. People playing a game with the crucifixion. People playing a game with Jesus. He's, he's novelty. He's a party trick to them. You know, being saved from hell isn't about any great work that you do. It's about this. It's about what Jesus did on the cross. I stayed out of church for the longest time because I thought, I, here's how I thought church worked. I thought church is where you started going when you decided that you were done being a bad person and now you wanted to go be really good. And then if you were good enough, then God was going to, you know, kind of review your report card and say, well, he's, he's good now. He can go to heaven now. And that's how I thought the whole thing worked. This isn't about cleaning yourself up. This isn't about becoming a good person in your own strength. It's not be about doing the right things. Christianity is all about what Jesus Christ has done for you. That's what it's all about. You can't make yourself good enough. There's nothing you can do to make yourself good enough. But Christ died for you. This was done for you. Verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. In the Gospel of John, it tells us that he said one word and that word was tetelestai. Does anybody know what that word means? Extra credit here today. Yeah, it is finished or paid in full. So Jesus from the cross, he yells out in his last moments of life and he says, tetelestai, paid in full. Every debt of every sin, every penalty of every sin has been paid in full at the cross. That's incredibly good news to you here today that are really struggling under the weight of your guilt. That have become acutely aware of your sin and your need for God. This is great news for you that Jesus Christ on the cross paid everything that you owe in full. You can go free because he didn't go free. Verse 51, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went in to the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those who were with him who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. It says, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, this is a really significant detail as well. The temple of the Jews was divided into three places, three sections. You had the courts, then you had the holy place, and then you had the most holy place. The most holy place was the only person that could go in there was the high priest, and he could only go in there once a year. And what he would do is he would go in there on the day called Yom Kippur. It's called the Day of Atonement. 
And he would go in there and he would take blood of a sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on the altar, the Ark of the Covenant that was in there and he would do a different, you know, he'd sprinkle blood in different places in this holy, of the holiest place. He would do this once a year and he would make atonement for the whole, you know, all the Jewish people. And he was the only person that had this access to God. And it's so significant that when Jesus was crucified, when he died, when he gave up his spirit, that this veil that separated, kept people out of the holy place, was torn. And notice this very significant detail. How was it torn? What do you suppose that means? That it was torn from top to bottom. I mean, this thing was massive. It was like 18 inches thick, like, you know, hardcore canvas, uh, leatherish sort of material. And it's torn from top to bottom. What do you suppose is significant about that? What is God trying to say to you? He's the one that did it. What does it say about God that he removed this veil between the most holy place? What's, what, what's available to you now? Him. Now we have direct access to God. Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, provides access to God. You say, oh, I'm pretty spiritual, man. I've been looking for God. I've been taking LSD, you know, and I've been like tripping out on shrooms and looking for God, man. Oh, yeah? Well, you're getting in contact with some kind of spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit, right? The thing about it is, is people think they're looking for God, but God's looking for you. And he's, through his son's death, has made direct access to himself. And that's what this is signifying here. God used to say, you better stay away. But now he's saying, everybody come here. Now the author of the Hebrews picks up on this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 20. It says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Man, that's so beautiful. This veil comes down. I had no access to God, but now through my faith in Jesus Christ, I have access to God. My conscience is cleaned. Do you have a clean conscience here today? Do you? Because God provides that. Jesus provides that. Nothing else provides that. You can't give yourself a clean conscience. You can try to finagle things in your mind so much. You can try to lie to yourself. You can't give yourself a clean conscience. You've tried. You're exhausted. You're actually becoming a different person because you're trying to cover all these things up. You can't do it. Jesus Christ can clean your conscience by his blood, by what was done on the cross. It's beautiful having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Praise the Lord. Where it says the earthquake and the rocks were split, nature itself is bearing witness to what happened on the cross. The graves were open. Scholars believe that there should be a gap between the end of 51 and 52 um, because this happened after his resurrection. Just the resurrection power that pulled Christ out of the dead affected dead bodies around and they were resuscitated to life. They would die again, although he was resurrected. They were resuscitated. And these hardened Roman soldiers, these death machines, these guys, they look at what's going on and they say, man, truly, this was the son of God. Truly. You've got Roman death machine that has crucified countless people. 
Then he looks around and he goes, this is different than any crucifixion I've ever seen before. This is something else. And he says, truly, this was the Son of God. I love this detail at the end where it says that these many women were with. The Bible takes great care to mention the many women that followed Jesus and ministered to him, the faithful, dedicated women. It's pretty interesting because all the male disciples have run away from the whole scene and the the females are there. They're ministering uh, and they're seeing, they want to see where Jesus' body will be laid because they want to give him a proper burial. Quite a mixed multitude there at the cross. This prefigures, no doubt, what would happen as the church would come. Jesus' burial, our last point. Verse 57, when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. So Sabbath was coming and the Jews don't do any work on the Sabbath. So he's hurrying and he goes into Pilate, this Joseph of Arimathea guy. And he says, Pilate, give me the, bio, give me the body. I'll take him. Uh, and I'll put him in my tomb. Bodies, um, you know, again, I mentioned this earlier, they would give them to him to family or friends during the holiday seasons, and they could take him off the cross. Now, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, in John chapter 19, verse 38, interesting detail about Joseph here. It says, um, John 19, 38 says that Joseph was a, you know, he was a member of the Jewish council, Right? And it says that he was a secret disciple of Jesus. I like that. I mean, he was following Jesus, but he was secretive about it. He was scared to admit that he was following Jesus. But the crucifixion, all of this brought him out. Now he's just totally, he's even going into a Roman during Passover, which would make you ceremonially unclean to celebrate the Passover, right? If you know your Jewish history and your Jewish law, just going into Pilate would have disqualified him from celebrating the Passover, but he doesn't care because it's all about Jesus now. He was a secret disciple. It's no secret anymore. He performs this, you know, little burial custom, clean linen cloth. It wasn't like today where, you know, like you take him to Good Shepherd or or whatever the place is downtown Fullerton and they embalm him and you go and it wasn't like that. And in these days, um, they would perform a a different burial ritual, put spices on him and aloes and myrrh. And and then, um, you know, they try to get him in the ground like that day because, um, you know, for obvious reasons. It says that he had this new tomb hewn out from the rock. I think we have a picture of a tomb that's like a typical, well, there's a picture of the rock. We also have a picture of the tomb too, but it might not have made it. Ah, there we go. So these would be like carved out of the rocks and then you would put the body, you know, up on that little shelf. And uh, wealthy people, uh, you know, this is what a wealthy person would have in these days. And so then the next picture of the rock uh, typically what would happen is that rock would sit, you know, off to the side of the door and it would be like uphill. So one person could roll this thing down a groove and it would sit in front of the door and lock into place. But it was so heavy that one person couldn't get it out, but they could get it in there. And so he goes and puts him in his tomb. Mary Magdalene, it says, was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. These were two of the dedicated women who had been at the cross. And I think about Mary Magdalene, I think about these gals, and I say, 
I can see why they were so dedicated. I mean, Jesus drove a bunch of evil spirits out of one of them. He drove all this, you know, demonic junk out of her. And then so she responded by just being dedicated to following him. Verse 62 says, On the next day which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the uh, stone and setting the guard. So the Jewish religious leaders, they remembered that Jesus said he was going to rise three days later. And so they say, hey, they go to the Roman officials and say, help us make, you know, put some guards in front of this tomb so his disciples don't come steal the body out of here and make it like some fraud, you know. And so Pilate says, you've got a guard, go make it, you know, go make it so. And then it says that they sealed the stone, verse 66, and they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone. What they would do is they would take clay on both sides of the rock and they would take a, like a streamer, you know, kind of thing and put it over the tomb. And if it was broken, it was proven that somebody had stolen the body out of it. So they said, go seal it. And then he put Roman guards to watch over the tomb. These are, by the way, Roman killing machine guards that know how to guard a tomb. Pretty important detail. So this thing is sealed, right? With such precautions, the only way the tomb could be empty would be for Jesus to rise from the dead. The Pharisees failed to understand that no rock, seal, guard, or army could keep them secure, nor could any power prevent the Son of God from rising again. So we leave it today in a place of great suspense, right? Jesus is in the tomb. The disciples of Christ have seemingly forgotten his promise to rise from the dead, although the religious rulers didn't. <laughs> the women know where he's been, uh, the tomb that he's put in, so they can come and give him a proper burial after the Sabbath. The religious rulers believe that they have won. What comes next is beyond words. And we're going to find out next week.